This is Performance Deliver, insider secrets for digital marketing success with Stefan Horst and Dave Antiel. Welcome to the Performance Delivered Insider Secrets for Digital Marketing Success podcast, where we talk with marketing and agency executives and learn about how they built successful businesses and their personal brand. I'm your host, Stefan Horst. Today, I'm happy to welcome Jared Doyle as my guest. Jared is the founder of Fractal, a Brisbane, Australia-based agency that works predominantly with startups. He is a three-time startup founder and has worked for different agencies in senior management positions. Jared and I actually know each other quite well. Back in the days in London, we worked for the same company where he ran the uh, operations or was the CEO of Reprise Media UK and myself worked on the EMEA side of that business. Um, Jared, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Jared, um, I want to start off with, you know, finding out how did you start in marketing? How, how did your career start in marketing? Did you from university straight went into the marketing or is there another route you took? Yeah, well, university, yeah. So that makes, um, I think I started the marketing in about 1997. So that makes me about as old as it gets with search and digital marketing. And, um, you know, my experience I had a computer at home, but it was the computer labs at the University of Queensland here in Australia. And I kept trying to, I kept seeing these things, opportunities, and I discovered that you could list businesses relatively easy, your websites relatively easy on Yahoo. And then you started to discover things like, hey, if I name all my websites starting with A, a bit like the Yellow Pages mm -hmm. optimization you do, you'd be at the top of Yahoo and people would come to your website. And when they came to your website, <laughs> you could make them do things and make money. And I think I was kind of bitten by the bug and decided, I kind of like this. And I just kind of, from that point, started and really focused on, I really search engine marketing as my first love, I guess. You have done that for quite a long time, um, search engine marketing. Yeah, well, I mean, I like to say that I've been doing it for longer than Google has been Google. So for many people listening, they won't remember a time before Google. And some people listening might not have even been born before Google came around. <laughs> But yeah, I remember the good old days of crazy search engines. We had LookSmart, AltaVista, Excite. Obviously, there was Yahoo. And then a plethora of small ones that just never existed um, in any great way, shape or form. But as a search engine marketer back in the late 90s, You used to optimize for six or seven different search engines at the same time. So if anyone listening to this does search engine marketing now um, and they kind of complain about Google, just imagine if you had 20 search engines. That was that was how tough it was for us back in the good old days. It was definitely much more complex. It took a lot more time, although, you know, it was a little bit like a gold rush back then because CPCs were cheap and competition was not that strong. So you could achieve a lot for little. Yeah, it was. It was unbelievably easy. You could still find so many key keywords where, for example, if you're doing paid search, no one was bidding. And I remember, you know, sometimes you couldn't even be bothered rolling out some search engines and, and sort of say early 2000s in Europe, I was advertising on, um, you had Yahoo, or which was Overture at the time. Mm -hmm. And then you had Google for a while, it kind of came in. And then of course you had like FindWhat and eSpotting in Morago. And some of these search engines still had quite good volumes, but you were buying clicks for a penny each. And mm -hmm. you just realized it, you wish you could wind the clock back and buy all that traffic now for, for you know, one penny or one cent a click. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moving forward in time, now you're, you're, you're kind of running this company, Fractal. What are you doing at Fractal? Can you can you talk about this a little bit? 
Yeah. So I guess I'm trying to consolidate my two career paths. So as you said in the introduction, I've I've sort of built and run a number of agencies over the mm-hmm. years. And at the same time, I've built and run a couple of startups. And so for me, the convergence of those two career paths is to run an agency that just focuses on startups. So what I do is I help businesses or founders of startup companies discover their first customers and then hopefully build a scalable marketing engine. So what I'm not doing is I'm not doing large scale, you know, paid search campaigns or mm-hmm. Facebook campaigns. What I'm doing is trying to find out if there are customers that will bite and try these products out. And, and you know, sometimes it doesn't always work out. You know, when you take a big corporate client on, you know, you can sell, you know, cars, you know, you can sell soft drink or clothes, whatever the big brand happens to be. But for a lot of my startup founders, there's absolutely no proof that anyone's going to buy their product. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say that my work has become difficult rather than hard. Running a big agency is often hard. As you know, you work really long Mm -hmm. hours, clients push you really hard to get extract that one and 2% performance uptick. Whereas my work I like to describe as being more difficult in the sense that no one actually knows if it's going to work at all. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's the way I tell myself I'm working now a little bit differently. So you're basically helping helping brands to discover whether there is a chance to make money before they start throwing money out of the window. Yeah, most of the time, unfortunately, they have thrown a lot of money. <laughs> oh, they already they're, did they're, that. Yeah, they've invested, they've built a product, but often they, they launch and then in their mind's eye, of course, everyone's going to love their product. But mm-hmm. as we know and appreciate, marketing is a lot about convincing people why. So yes, you can build a product that's better or a service that's better, but you have to convince somebody that it's better for them. And that messaging is important. And then you've got to discover who that messaging really appeals to and who those early adopters are going to be. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. And then once I've built a marketing engine and once it's kind of working, that's when you know a client of mine would typically either hire someone internally or start to outsource to an agency. Because the work that I do isn't highly polished. It's usually quite... Um, random in the sense that I'm running lots of different tests all the time, mm-hmm. but I enjoy that. And I enjoy working with the founders uh, because, you know, what I find with the founder is they're often very excited to find out that they're wasting money because it means they can stop. Yeah. Whereas often the worst news you can give to a client of a large corporation is that you run a campaign and it hasn't worked because that's potentially their job. So mm-hmm. it's a very different working environment. And look, it's it's different. But like I said, it's it's more difficult than it is hard. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you have people that actually are willing to listen to what might not work and how they might have to adjust. I mean, I, I think we both have been in in situations where you're talking to a brand and say, you know what, this is not going to work. This is not your audience. This is not how you should do this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're just not listening and still want to go with things and want to throw money at it, although you know it's not going to work. Yeah, I um, I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about what I do is that because, because the companies I work with being startups are usually only a few people big, you can influence their product decision. You, As a marketer, you're often getting handed, uh, in a big agency anyway, you're getting handed a script and a strategy that's been formulated months before you and lots of people have been involved in. The mm-hmm. fact that you know it doesn't work, they kind of don't want to hear that it doesn't really matter. You've got to find and do the best you can with it. With a startup company, I usually have the, I'm usually in the fortunate position where I get to influence the strategy really early on and ideally even the way the product is designed. So we can often go back, change the actual product, actual service and reposition it. So look, I like that. And I think maybe that comes from my stubborn nature where, you know, I do want to tell brands what to do. I do want to tell them how to conduct their business. So with a startup company, I guess I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be given that privilege. 
<laughs> well, I mean, what you just said about, you know, building a product, building a service and then finding the market. I mean, that kind of is, is a great um, bridge over to the agency side, right? Because if someone is thinking about founding an agency, and, and that's the topic we want to talk about today, um, I mean, they have to go through this thought process too. No one should just go about and say, I'm going to found an agency today and I name it X and I'm doing all of this without knowing whether there is really a market for, for that service they are offering. Yeah, unfortunately, you see people do that all the time. They spend more time thinking about what they want, what they want to call their agency mm -hmm. rather than who their customers are going to be. So, look, I think all agencies start really as independent contractors. You know, you need mm -hmm. to start yourself. You need to do the work. The worst thing you could do with an agency is to go into an area that you can't really do. So, for example, I can't really design websites. So, me launching a website design agency means straight away I've got to hire some people and have some overheads before I've got any billable dollars coming in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, your first goal, I think, really is to to see where the demand is, to see where your interests lie and, and find those first customers. Because if you can't find the first customers yourself, how do you ever really imagine you're going to be able to build an entire agency around that offering? Yeah. And how would you go about that, about identifying where your niche is? You know what you know, you know, you know where your what your what your skill set is, but but how do you identify, you know, I have this skill set and where's the niche that can really can apply that skill set to? I guess look, you know, there's there's two ways of approaching it. Um I think like I like to start with people about where their passion lies. Like why do they do what they do? Where where's their driving force? You know, what what makes them really enjoy what they do in their job. And then you kind of discover the niche beyond that. So it might be that you really like the fine tuning, the optimization. It might be that you like the idea of, um, you know, the competition of it. There are lots of different reasons why you might do it. And then you can usually find your niche within that. And I think if you can find something that you really love and you're really passionate about, it tends to be a lot more satisfying later on when it works. Um, but the other thing is for me, look, Finding a niche, that's that's tough. But what I can suggest is always try to niche down further than you imagine is humanly possible. So, you know, you don't just launch a, an ad agency. You don't just launch a digital agency. You don't just launch a search agency. You know, you've really got to go all the way down. So it's like it was a paid search, is it particular engines? You know, maybe you're launching uh, a paid search agency that specializes in non-English markets, but in the US. And maybe mm -hmm. you do that in non-Google engines. And, and the point is, you get so niche that then someone in, you know, LA says, hang on, I really want to launch my shoe brand in Russia. How am I going to do that? And it's like, oh, you need to speak to Agency X. They specialize in Yandex and Russia, and they're based here in the US. And you think, perfect, that's the right agency for me. So because you've always got the chance to expand back up, you've always got the chance to add, you know, new engines and new markets and, and expand. But what most agencies do is find, they try to get into a bigger, the biggest market they can imagine they can compete in and then unfortunately find themselves competing on price and, and we've all been there if you run an agency you get to a pitch and and then you know the dreaded procurement person comes across and it's all about dollars and what you cost but if you're the only la-based dedicated russian outreach paid search agency with u.s localized staff well mm -hmm. it's not about price because you're the only show in town so i think that's that's probably my biggest advice is not so much how to pick the niche is start super small just be absolutely specific at what you do and think about who you are as a person and what you can do you know so you know if you can speak russian or you can speak german or both well 
make that your advantage. You know, if mm. I'm could be anything, you know, I could use my Australian, you know, experience. And that's just talking about geography, but it could be sure. anything, right? It could even be that you run a, a um an agency that a paid search agency that specializes in landing page optimization for paid search i mean mm-hmm. it, the point is niche is where you're going to win niche is where you're able to carve out a market and build a reputation as being the best and that's ultimately what you want to be is what you don't want to be is the third best in a market your goal is to define yourself and then eventually your agency as the best at one specific thing because then you'll win because as you know as yourself and I've experienced many times, the most frustrating thing about an agency is going to a pitch and coming second because second's mm. the closest yeah. to first, but has exactly the same reward as last place, which is zero dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a that's a good point. But let me ask ask this: if 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 I go into a niche, you know, my my target pool, so client pool is very small. Um, am I not making it harder for me in finding my first clients? By doing so? Look, I don't believe so. And I believe it's a trick of mind. And what happens is people often look at an addressable market. So they get their total addressable market or TAM and they Mm. say to themselves, if I can just win 1% of this market, then I'm going to have a great business. But the problem is that theory used to work when everyone's business was based on shop fronts on a high street and people walking past. And the idea Mm. was that some people would just fall in. But we live in a digital and global world where people can find an agency anywhere. Like someone in the US could call me, someone in Japan could call you up and work with you. And so it's an increasingly global market that we're participating in. So it's actually easier to be the best. And there's a great study done by a guy called Zip. And it's hard to say his name, but it's Z-I-P-F, I think, or Z-I-F-P, one of the two, but it's Zip's Law. And Ziff's law basically says that in any given market, the leader in that market will get on average twice as much business as second place. He'll get twice as much as third and twice as much as fourth. Mm-hmm. And so what it says is you're actually better off being the best in a small market than position you know, 50 or 60 because that person gets such a small amount of the market, it won't work. And, and for anyone, and for both of us being search engine marketers, mm-hmm. we can see this law work perfectly in the Google SERPs. Because we know that position one is going to get way more traffic than position two, which gets way more than three and four and five. And by the time you come to position 11, 12, and 13, well, you may as well not even bother bidding because there's no real traffic to be had there. And that's the same in in almost every single market. And I think if you can wrap your head around that and realize how much more you win by being the best at a market than you do by being an also-run, then that's, that's where the true success and scale comes from. So is it hard to find the people? Well, conceptually, yes, because you think you're looking for less people. But the amazing thing happens is when you're the best, people find you. When you're the best at Russian paid search for US-based companies, people tend to find you because when they're asking for referrals, no one ever refers a business who's the second best. You know, yeah. if you come out to Brisbane, Stefan, you say, oh, Jared, you know, where's the best schnitzel in Brisbane? Well, I'm not going to recommend the third best place, am I? Sure. I'm going to recommend. And so that's that's the benefit of being the best in a niche. So, you know, it's about getting away from the mind's eye of saying, oh, there's lots of fish in the ocean. It's about saying, actually, I'm just going to catch the one fish, but it's in this tiny little fishbowl. That analogy is probably overworked, but you get the idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a great, that's a great point. So... We've we've kind of defined, you know, let's let's break down where you want to be in in, in 
create a niche for you where you can really stand out and, and be the number one instead of being one of many. Um, which kind of leads to how do you find your first client? In your experience, having having launched uh, agencies in the past, having worked for for big media agencies, and, and I think one of your positions uh, in Brisbane for uh, I think it was iProspect, you launched their office there. Um, how 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 would you go about to find that first client, and what steps do you go through? Yeah, um, yeah, I did launch uh, iProspect in Brisbane, and yeah, it was hard um, because. I remember saying to the to the uh, national CEO, and he said, "Hang on, but where are you going to start? How are you going to find a customer? How are you going to find your first client?" And it really became a case of me just networking, and there's no other word for it than hustle. You know, so it's just getting out there, meeting people, speaking to people, and what I started to do was just pay it forward. So I started to give the best advice I could out to lots of different people, um, mm -hmm. and network as hard as I could, and just wait for that opportunity to to speak to an agency, to sorry, speak to a potential client, and get that first chance to pitch. So you know, it 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 was pretty difficult. Um, the other thing I did that I think worked well was I looked for partnerships um, as quickly as possible. So walking into independent design agencies, brand agencies, buying agencies, billboards, whatever happened out of home, and just finding them and helping them work with their clients and, and giving advice. And so I think I just committed a lot of time to doing a lot of I sort of, I won't say free work because it was, you know, it was network building, but I tried mm -hmm. to do as much as possible to go as far as possible. And actually the little area that I found worked well was what I actually did was I started giving out basic SEO and paid search advice to design agencies. So I started mm -hmm. providing search services for design agencies for them specifically. Mm -hmm. And so they were naturally inclined after they went, oh, that was great. And that worked really well for me. Mm -hmm. You should come in and speak to my client as well. And so that, I think if I was going to give one trick, it would be not that I walked into a design agency and said, hey, would you like to sell my services? I walked into a design agency and said, hey, here's a whole bunch of tips to improve your SEO and your local SEO. And here's some paid search. And I've made some recommendations here on audience retargeting. And what happened was the founders of those agencies and the, the managing directors were so happy that I was giving them advice, I naturally became their preferred partner. So that's, if you want one sort of clear takeaway, mm -hmm. that, that kind of idea of finding partnerships and giving them the service, not their clients, so just not quite going straight for what you really want, that tended to be the best, the best way. Mm -hmm. And the introductions were brilliant. The introductions that they made to their clients weren't, oh, you, know, you should work with Jared, he's really good. They would say, you should work with Jared, he did the work on our business and it's done really well. And that was a totally different way to get a referral. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So, I mean, in addition to that, obviously, someone should also look into their own network, obviously, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's another good starting point to, to see whether there is business opportunities to grow an agency. Yeah, I must say... Um my LinkedIn profile became one of the most important things that I had because there wasn't too, too much else to, to work with. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, using using your own contacts and chatting to people about what you were trying to do. Um, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily built into everyone's nat natural sort of psyche or personality because yeah. um, what you're, you're not hitting up your friends and family for work. You're just letting everybody know that you're out there. And it's funny, but but people don't assume that you're looking for work. People don't assume you need contacts. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to get really good at saying, people say, what do you do? And you've got to not only say what you do, you've got to say like who you're looking to work with because people are intrinsically uh, inclined to help you out. 
And mm. I just found the more I said what I was trying to do and the more the type of people I wanted to work with, sure enough, you know, people say, oh, you should chat to X, Y, or Z. Mm. So one of my one of the strange first clients I got was actually um, an investor in my previous startup business. And he lost his money investing in my startup business. But I still contacted him and he said, hey, I've got another company over here. Come on <laughs> in and, you know, have a chat to that company. And they were actually my first client I signed up. So okay. um, I would like to say, I mean, as much as he lost his money, I did everything right. I mean, obviously, <laughs> he, he still trusted me. But, you know, that's, that's the nature of investing in a startup. But, sure. yeah, it was those kind of contacts. And you realize, yeah, you never know where the leads are going to come from. But for me, it all falls under that umbrella of you've got to hustle. You've got to get out there. You know, if you think you can throw a website up, you know, think of it like you'd advise your clients. You can't just throw a website up and wait for people to, to come. You've mm -hmm. actually got to get out there and network and meet people and explain to people what, you, what you're trying to achieve. And I think when you do that, then this, 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 this niche focus becomes, again, it's very important because if you can pinpoint what exactly you can do, how you can help someone, it's much better than saying, I do digital marketing, I do paid search and this and that and this, which kind of a lot of companies do, which does not make you stand out in the conversation. Exactly. And look, what I would say too is if you're, if you're launching a company or launching an agency is you can still do work that doesn't fall into your niche. So when I'm starting out and, and someone sort of says, oh, you know, what do you want to do? Yes, I want to work, purely do marketing for startups. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm just starting out and I've got to pay the bills and I've got a family and someone comes along and says, hey, can you do this corporate work or can you do this white mm -hmm. label work or whatever it might be? Well, of course you do that. <laughs> you don't say no. You take yeah. whatever work you can do. Sure. Um, and even if that might be driving an Uber, I mean, who knows, right? You, you do what you can do to pay the bills, mm -hmm. but you don't change your positioning. And yeah. that's, that's probably the key thing. Yeah. We talked about value prop um, and, 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 you know, how to find your niche. We talked about, you know, how to find your first clients and get that on board. Um, so you're, you're, you're taking off or that agency now starts to take off. Um, how do you go about hiring the first people? I mean, you know, do you, and, and you know, the way how you talked earlier, you talked about, you know, you don't necessarily need a co-founder. You can, you start as a freelancer contractor and build it up from there. Um, is there a situation where you would say, hey, you know what, you should really look for a co-founder in that scenario to take off some workload? And, and, and who should that co-founder be? Should that be someone that is complementary to your skills? Should I have the same skills? What is your view on that? Oh, there's a few things there. So working backwards on the questions, the <laughs> look, I don't think they should have the same skills because then you suffer groupthink because you sort of go, oh, this is, we both think the same thing. Mm -hmm. So all your decisions are kind of made. You actually want someone who's quite different to you. So a different approach, you know, so if you're strong at marketing, maybe they're better at sales. If um, they're better at client services, maybe you're better at strategy, whatever it happens to be, but you mm -hmm. want different types of people. Look, I guess the benefit with a co-founder is that you've got somebody else who's maybe willing to work and not get paid for one month. Um, mm. Because w w the first thing you said there was, you know, when do you, how do you hire your first staff member? And look, I haven't met someone who's founded an agency and hired their first time, first full-time employee and didn't have to basically forgo money themselves. Every mm -hmm. single time they do that, not long after they, they onboard them, they get them going, they get them up to speed. They look at their in, you know, receivables for the month and go, uh-oh, I have a whole lot less money than I thought. 
well, I can't not pay the employees, so I'm going to not pay myself. And that, yeah. unfortunately, I think is a story that almost every founder of an agency will tell you is there's just those weeks and months where they've got no money coming in for themselves mm. and they're paying their staff and a staff member comes in and asks, asks for a pay rise and they're thinking, well, you want a pay rise, I just want to get paid. <laughs> um, and you kind of hide your perception about, you know, you try to, you know, you don't want to tell them, you know, well, I didn't pay myself last month um, mm-hmm. because you want to keep that, you know, facade up that you're doing really well. You don't want to freak them out. No, exactly. Um, look, I, as much as possible and wherever possible, you know, collaborations with people who are doing, you know, or also independent freelancers can work. You know, you can hire a remote team, a contract mm-hmm. team these days. That's nowhere near as daunting as it used to be. Um, and I think that tends to work well with a co-founder because then you can kind of, you've got that backup person. I guess the one thing about just being by yourself is there is nobody to hand over to, nobody to pick up an email, nobody to support you in what you might be doing, no one to uh, to, to fly the ship while you're um, on holidays or having a baby or whatever might be going wrong. But, you know, I guess try to delay it. But those first few employees are probably the most scary because just that cost, the, you know, you pay the salary every week or every fortnight um, and, and it is going to hurt. You know, it really, really hurts. In terms of who those first employees are, oh, gee, you know, it, it varies. But I think, typically speaking, you're going to be hiring a fairly junior staff member, um, and that's simply because you're looking to create that uh, efficiency that happens in an agency. And the efficiency is that ability to pay you, in theory, for the high-level strategy, and then someone cheaper to do the doing. Um, the you know, and the bigger that gap in salary or, or billable hours, the more efficiency you can find by shuffling hours back and forth between the two of you. You know, so the most efficiency you'll get is that first hire because all of a sudden you might be billing yourself out at $200 an hour and the new hire might be at $50 an hour. Well, the difference, that delta in between, is is the efficiency you can pick up by moving work back and forth. And that's what you've got to really focus on is is keeping that efficiency, uh, I guess, as high as possible. And every single time you you employ a new person, you get another opportunity to find another level of efficiency. Uh, and that's ultimately the game. So for most agencies, you know, you are going to look to be hiring somebody who you can grow up in your mind's eye. Um, and hopefully they're willing to work at the appropriate levels of agency hours that you're going to require because you're probably going to be a very demanding boss given that it's your agency. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you. So you just said, you know, you probably hire a cheaper junior person. Um, isn't there a danger with, with, with doing that? I mean, probably is less experience, which means there's more time required for you to oversee things, to correct things. Um, wouldn't it be better to hire maybe a more expensive senior person? Well, I guess you know, there's arguments on both sides. Um, I guess, you know, for me, it's about it's about the efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only problem with hiring a senior person is then you get a lot of people who both prefer to do the strategy and the top end work. So, I mean, if you're running a consultancy where it's all sort of high end strategy work, I think that makes sense. But, you know, your first hires, I feel like most agency founders and owners are going to micromanage their first staff anyway. You know, they're going to sit next to them. You're going to spend a lot of time with them anyway. So you're going to be spending so many contact hours with your first hire, making sure that, you know, that painful weekly and fortnightly salary that you're paying out, you're getting the best value you can for it. You may as well do that with someone who's a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if you want a senior hire, I'd, I'd fall back to where you were before and more likely bring someone in on an equity um, basis mm-hmm. who, who's, who's more likely to be 
willing, I guess, to, to have those late pay packets arrive because they've, yeah. they've got an equity slice. Look, you know, from a, from a, from a job sanity point of view, absolutely. I'd much rather hire senior people with more experience so I don't have to teach them everything about what it is to be at an agency. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I've also never really found anyone, especially for that first hire, who can build up so much billable work they can afford to take on an expensive hire, mm-hmm. pay that salary and still keep their head above water. Um, because that's ultimately what happens. Usually what you do is you usually work yourself, you know, so you're doing, it's not 40 hours, not 50, maybe like 60 hours of you know, billable a week, something where you, you're almost about to burn out. And that's yeah. when you take your first hire because you're trying to almost build two salaries, which is mm-hmm. almost impossible to do. Yeah. And so you're more likely to reach that point of comfort where you say, I can probably pay someone 45,000 a year plus tax plus, you know, whatever else obligations I need plus insurance. Um, you're more likely to, to take that jump as a founder, I think, just out of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's kind of where I've always found myself, but, you know, I guess it's horses for courses, right? Depends on exactly what you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with bringing new people in and then kind of having a vision for your agency and having having thoughts about how things should be done, whether that's from a work perspective, how clients are treated, you name it. Um Processes obviously are, are quite important. Are there certain processes you feel that a new agency should have in place to make sure, although you bring someone on board, there is no chaos on the ship? Yeah. Well, I think, look, I think early on, you don't have to have too many processes when you've only got a couple of staff members. So mm-hmm. I don't, I think you can over engineer it. I think there's some fundamental things you've got to get right, you know, so getting people, in the idea of, you know, billable hours, if that's how you're working, time tracking, getting those sheets, getting those systems set up early, that makes a bit of sense. Um, and that's a discipline that you probably want to impose upon yourself when you first start. So tracking your hours and when I, mean, I do that now, right? So even doing this podcast, I'm tracking these hours. <laughs> and so, and the reason why I do that is because we can have this chat for half an hour and then I look at the end of the day and think to myself, oh, I've only done seven hours work. Well, Yes, but this counts as work as well. So it's seven and a half hours. So that's one. But generally speaking, I think it's more important that you really have a clear vision and mission for your agency because you can create, you can spend a lot of time trying to create rules to micromanage to get things working. But what you really want is to try to create an autonomous team that are capable of making their own decisions based on the general direction. Mm-hmm. And so I'm paraphrasing here some advice that some US military journal, um, generals have sort of been putting out recently, which is to say the best laid plans, or oh, actually a better quote is Muhammad Ali, which is everyone's got a plan. Was it Mike Tyson? I don't know. I'm misquoting everybody. Let's just say it's it Mike boxers, Tyson. It? <laughs> it's a boxer. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. And that's the thing. Like you can have all these details and all this structure in place, mm-hmm. but when things start to go wrong, they're going to fall apart. But if you've got some underlying principles, if you've got a vision and mission that's clear about how you want to conduct yourself, how the agency is going to succeed, then and you empower your staff to just try to deliver on that, well, then you've got a better chance of making stuff work. So I think, you know, once you've defined that niche, sort of defining the culture and how you want your agency to work becomes absolutely crucial. And look, I've worked for lots of agencies where they talk about, you know, this is our mission or this is our vision and it's always client first. But it never is, you know, there's always that, sure. you know, other reason why not to do something or a different way to chase something. So if you get that right and people truly understand that, 
then and they're empowered to make their own decisions based on that, then stuff will tend tend to work out for you. I think that's a that's a great advice. When it comes to software solutions to make things easier or you know to organize things, are there any any software solution that, that from from your experience you you used or, or still use um, to to run things smoother or to to organize things better? Yeah. So okay. Well, I mentioned time tracking. So I use mm -hmm. Harvest, which is a nice app yeah. that runs on my phone, runs on my desktop. That tracks my hours. Um, and what I like about Harvest is it's part of the API community uh, or economy, which means it plugs into lots of other tools. Mm -hmm. So then, when I'm using a CRM, I use PipeDrive, and PipeDrive and Harvest talk really nicely to each other. Mm -hmm. So that when you get a lead in, you put in the PipeDrive and you work them through PipeDrive. It sounds very methodical, but you know, you, you, you know, you keep a CRM system. But by using PipeDrive, I know it works well with Harvest. I also know that Harvest works well with another app called Proposify, and Proposify mm -hmm. allows you yeah. to throw proposals out to potential clients, just right, you know, it contracts out to them, and mm -hmm. that's got the e-signature built into it. Mm -hmm. And what I like about all of those things is Harvest and Proposify um, both connect into Stripe, and so you can actually get people paying you upfront or even receiving those payments. So yeah. when I send recurring invoices out to clients, um, I also, for most of them, put in a Stripe credit card payment. Now, because I've got startup clients, they often run <laughs> right to the end and it's like, and the reminders go out. And so having that credit card option means they can often just pull out their personal credit card and pay that outstanding invoice. So my big thing is to use software that talk to each other. And, you know, at the back end, for my accounting, I use Zero, which is a New Zealand-based accounting mm -hmm. software. So um, not as big as um, QuickBooks, I think it's mm -hmm. in yeah. uh, in the US, but but Zero is is an amazing bit of software. And all of the things that I'm talking about there all connect into Zero. So when I give it to my bookkeeper, everything's been tracked, all my hours are in there, mm -hmm. and I've managed that for myself. So, and then, you know, and then I, on top of that, I just layer Google Suite. So I use, you know, Gmail as the, the powerhouse for all my documents and, yeah. and email. And so by using that, connecting it to Pipedrive, connecting that to Proposify, connecting that to Harvest, I, I get an overall tool and uh, a view of where I'm at. And, you know, yes, each one of these is another $15 or $20 a month software as a service subscription. And so that mm -hmm. bill becomes a little bit of an overhead, but it's pretty manageable and there are months where i don't send anything out from proposify but i'm not going to to drop it in a hurry yeah and i think you know i mean as you said you've got a nifty setup there but that also makes things easier you have to draft a proposal in, in in word for example and then the client has to scan it in in order to um to sign it i mean you make things easy for your client, but you also make things easy for yourself by having systems that talk to each other and that work with each other and allows you to push information from one system to the next system to the next system to the next system. Yeah, because you don't want to be double entering things. Like exactly. That's not what you're there to do. You want it to happen for you. Um, and so you've got one or two areas of input and you try to automate that process as much as possible. So for me with Pipedrive, you know, if I want to, if I'm going to send an email, I've got a button in my Gmail, I click it and it automatically BCCs Pipedrive, or if I think this is a potential new lead, and then that throws it in. So the only thing I have to remember to start using Pipedrive is to BCC my Pipedrive email address and the system sort of kicks off and everything starts to run from there. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is I, look, I 
really like to be on clients' internal Slack channels. Like I mm. like to be on Slack because it means that you can pick up on things quickly. You can always be in contact with them. And instead of having to, you know, craft those perfectly word- worded emails where mm-hmm. you've got all the right niceties in the top and the bottom and the sign off and it's spell checked. Mm-hmm. I like just being able to flick stuff back and forth quickly yeah. with Slack and give much better value for money. Um, and that, of course, that depends on the relationship and how you're going to work with clients. But yeah. I find it's much harder to lose a client if you feel like you're part of the team. Whereas if you're a completely outsourced service provider, it's much easier for a client to cut you off and say, hey, we're, we're just going to lose you know, Jared's agency. We don't need them anymore. When mm. I'm on the Slack channel, I can just, you know, you can be involved in the jokes, the memes, the things you can engage with that. Um, you just build a different relationship. And you're so, part of the team. Yeah, exactly. And so if if you can use Slack, and even if you can use, um, if you've got a paid Slack and you can integrate into one of their channels, so you can integrate your whole agency Slack account into one channel, which allows everyone to use it. um, That can, that's a fantastic feature that Slack's got. And that way, you know, it's easy to collaborate. And then you kind of, you, you patch into their workflow. So if you're a marketing agency, and you patch into the client's marketing channel, your whole agency can then access just their marketing channel. And all of a sudden, that noise and all the different team members you've got on your side working on their account makes a massive difference because now they can see the work that you're doing and they can see the quick back and forth um, rather than what I think most people fall into the trap of, which is go away for a couple of weeks and come back and say, here's my presentation, here's my research, here's my strategy. Uh, You know, they can't really see all the work you've put into it. Whereas if you're on Slack and you're pinging back and forth, the work you produce becomes collaborative and you've got a lot a lot lower chance of producing something and the client going yeah i don't like that that's wrong try again you know Mm -hmm. you've you've touched based every day when you actually produce it it's not a surprise but they're going to be happy with the end result yeah and and just full disclosure we're not getting any referral fees for this or have you negotiated that prior to our call what's that with with with, for for, um, for mentioning all those companies (laughs) no no we should we should sign up i think harvest i think they all do have referral fees but But, you know the reason i'm saying is is obviously there are there are other solutions that that do the same thing these are just solutions that you know um jared and some of them we here at symphonic digital use ourselves um, but there are a number of software solutions out there that do similar things than what we just talked about. I think at the end of the day, it's about making sure that you work smart, not hard. You know, this this platitude, but you know, think about how you can create a, you know, an environment and, 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 and a structure that takes work off your desk and not adds onto it. Yeah, and and the one thing about time tracking and and, and CRM systems is they also give you a view about where you're spending your time and, and what mm-hmm. you're not doing right. So sometimes you can fall into the trap of, you know, doing too much on promotion or BD work and you can look at the end of the day. And like I said, in, today might be seven hours of billable work and half an hour of business development work. And you mm-hmm. go, well, that's great. But those days where you do six hours of business development, you realize, oh, okay. So you can you can start to analyze yourself and being a bit true about yourself. So the two things that I like about tracking my time is making sure that I'm still doing work that I'm going to get paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, and also making sure I provide value for clients as well, because look, th- there is a trick, uh, there's a trap that people who run agencies fall into. And it's that one client who doesn't complain and you probably don't give them the full hours you need to. And eventually they leave and then you realize they were your profitable client. The ones that are bugging you all the time and you're doing mm-hmm. six hours and you should be doing four, well, they're the unprofitable clients. And so by tracking your own time, even if you're just an agency of one when you start, it helps you realize who the clients are that you really want to maintain, the clients that you want to look after, 
Because the worst thing is when you lose your profitable client, everything else falls down around it. You can often be spending all your time on unprofitable clients trying to keep them happy. If you've got that mix wrong, and it's a trap that we fall into all the time on the agency side, is yeah, your whole business sort of comes down around your ears. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is if you lose the unprofitable client, sometimes you only realize how unprofitable they were after you leave and you go, wow, I've got all this time and <laughs> I've only lost you know, a small amount of my fee. It's like, yeah. ah, I knew I didn't like that client for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, it looks like we're coming towards the end uh, in regards to time. I have, I have one more question for you, Jared. Um, what's a single piece of advice you would give someone contemplating to launching their own agency? Oh, um, single piece of advice would be, look, if you're in charge of your own time, um, which you will be and you're responsible for it, and I'm going to assume you're going to be successful, which means you're going to work a lot of hours, Make sure you carve some time out for you and do something specific that says, I'm in control of my own hours now, and this is what I'm going to do. And I'll give you an example. I coach my son's soccer team, the Wombats, the under sevens, Barton Latrobe Wombat soccer team. We haven't been defeated this season. Yeah. And what I'm able to do is every Wednesday afternoon, you can't get me at three o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon because at three o'clock on a Wednesday, I'm coaching the Wombats down at a soccer field. And <laughs> And I put that time aside so that I can say to myself, I work for myself and there are times when it's hard. There are times when it's tough and you think, oh, I'm not going to get paid. But what I'm never going to look back on I'm on my deathbed to be you know, morbid about it, I'm not going to look back and go, gee, I wish I'd kept that client. You know, I'm going to look back and go, those days coaching my son's soccer team, that's the important thing. So when you become the gatekeeper of your own time, of your own destiny, Block out some time to do something, whether it be get fit, learn to cook, learn a language, spend time with your wife, your partner, helping your parents out, whatever it might be, coaching a soccer team. Do something that you can look back and say, that's the benefit of working for yourself. Because otherwise, running an agency, it will swallow all of your time. You've only got to, if you if you leave that time free in your diary, it will get chewed up. So that that's my big bit of advice. That's not about being successful in, in an agency. Um, I guess that's about being successful in life. So maybe not exactly what you meant, but that's my one bit of advice. I think that's a that's a that's a good piece of advice um, because otherwise you will burn out quickly, and you ask yourself, "What did I do, and, and where did the fun go?" Yeah. This has been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, if, if people, um, and I don't know if you work with, with companies in, in the US, uh, but if people in Australia um, want to reach out to you and want to find out more about you or about Fractional and what you do, and, and if you might be able to help them, how can they find you? Um, LinkedIn is my social media of choice. So I'm just Jared Doyle, so G-E-R-A-R-D-D-O-Y-L-E on LinkedIn. And from there, you can find everything else about me. Um, I don't I think I've got one client in the US at the moment. I tend to do really short bursts of work for people. So I just sort of help them get in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, if anyone pings me, I'm always happy to give a little bit of advice over, over email as well. So if you find me on LinkedIn, you'll find all my other social handles from that one point. Sounds great. And we'll put it in the, in the description as well. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you like the Performance Delivered podcast, please subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast application. If you want to find out more about Symphonic Digital, you can visit us at symphonicdigital.com or follow us on Twitter at SymphonicHQ. Thanks again and see you next time. Performance Delivered is sponsored by Symphonic Digital. 
Discover audience-focused and data-driven digital marketing solutions for small and medium businesses at symphonicdigital.com.